Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, lunchswithlegends.com. Okay, now without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our very special guest today, the one and only uh, Bruce Linton. Bruce is the founder, former CEO, and former chairman of Canopy Growth Corporation. Uh, currently, he holds the positions of co-chairman and former CEO of Martello Technology Groups, chairman of the advisory board of Red Light Holland Corp, and non-executive director with Acreso Pharmaceuticals, as well as chairman of Oscar Capital. He's an advisor to Caledon Pharmaceuticals and Above Foods and an active investor with Slang Worldwide and with OGDNA Genetics. Bruce also sits on the board of uh, Canadian Olympic Foundation and is an active member at the Ottawa uh, Hospital Foundation on their campaign executive committee. He is the founding executive chairman of Gage Growth Corp, now a wholly owned subsidiary of Terrasen and leading North American MSO. He's the founding board member and chairman Governance and Compensation Committee at Mind Medicine, and also the the uh, was the chairman and CEO of Collective Growth Corporation, a SPAC, which went public in uh, May of 2020 and completed its business transaction with the Innovis Technologies in April 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome um, one of the most knowledgeable people in the space we're going to chat about today, uh, Bruce Linton. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mo. It, um... As I commented to you, I think I feel more comfortable with the idea of breaking bread with Bruce rather than lunches <laughs> with legends, but I do uh, I do appreciate being here. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. And listen, we were chatting a little earlier, and I think it's probably a great place to start, uh, as we often do, is just with your story, you know, to share a little bit about where you were raised, what did that look like, and how that may have shaped uh, your worldview today. Um, well, my parents car they're down to one because they're 79 and 80 has a license plate that's a vanity plate and it's not very vain what it says is to be fair and it's not a way to introduce like a, a counter argument it's the way that my mother particularly uh, conducted herself and expected the same of us which was to be unbelievably fair to the point that there was a period of time my brother who's two and a half years younger than I and now much taller than me people thought we were twins and it's because she would buy the exact same clothes for us so that we were thinking that anybody got special treatment. Not all the time, but some of the time. And so that was sort of like um, the framework. And where we were living from the time I was seven on was a small farm in Southern Ontario. And they moved there in part because my mom had grown up on a farm, but in part because they had two boys that had a lot of energy. And, uh, it was really good for me. And I think for many children that um, you don't get in trouble on the farm. You just, you know, you might get the tractor stuck. You might have to explain why you chose to cut down the tree that's now across the lane that's going back to a field that you now have to move. But um, that was really good for me because it, it gave me a place to apply effort and also gave me a chance to really learn um, a bit of humble work ethic is kind of the standard operating mode. And so um, from to be fair, to do not sleep in. And we didn't even have a curfew. Hmm. There was When we were, you know, that sort of you're getting to 18, you could arrive home at six as long as you were up at seven. Right. There was no, there was no going home time. It wasn't set. It was getting up time. And I always thought that's a very, it's a pretty practical way to manage people. Yeah. Yeah. 
And just uh, out of curiosity, I mean, you have uh, two kids of your own. How, how, how have you translated that philosophy or tried to convey that philosophy to your kids who are growing up in a, obviously in a pretty different yeah. uh, world? Well, I think it's probably for everybody on this uh, Zoom, the single biggest transition and challenge is how do you take what created a lot of your ability to succeed and convey that to children? And I think I'm probably okay in that they both have great work ethic, but you know, we live in a reasonably suburban area. Uh, they understood fully uh, how dad worked. Uh, one of the benefits they had was um, when my wife and I were about to get married, part of the negotiation and everything with me is a negotiation um, was that if we did have children and they did get left at daycare accidentally, it wasn't my fault because I wasn't in charge of picking them up or dropping them off. That wasn't going to be me. So maybe it'd be better if she wanted to stay home for the first five or turned out to be 18 years to sort of help frame that there's one stable, always available parent. Right. And so they both have very good work ethic. They're both um, in Toronto now, which is the mag mega draw when you're in Ottawa, they all end up in Toronto and they're both in university. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we've done okay. Um, one of them I for sure corrupted because I would always talk about transactions at the dinner table and explain that, you know, the accountant seemed to do about half the work and get about 10% of the total fee. The lawyer did about sort of 40% of the work and might've gotten, you know, okay chunk of the fee. And the investment bankers, they just came up with the picture and generally kept it moving. And they took the lion's shares of the fee. So uh, we kept having this discussion and which ones are doing what. And uh, before you know it, I have with this kid just finishing first year university who wants to be an investment banker who's working <laughs> in Toronto in the uh, equity capital markets world. So um, be careful what you talk about at, at dinner, I guess, as part of the discussion. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And so as you're thinking about, you know, this impact that you had on your life and your mother, or you're having on your kids, your mother's impact on yours, is there any other people that when you look back, you feel have had a truly profound impact on your life? Well, for me, I am. Uh, one of my friends in Toronto is a guy named uh, Murray Goldman. And Murray came from Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. And he barely made it to Toronto, I think, with enough money in his pocket to get there, maybe have a, a meal in a night or so. And he and I routinely talk. We talk every morning, every Monday morning at uh, 9 a.m. We have a, a board meeting, even though there's nothing to have a board meeting about. Um, and one of the things he said that I thought was quite right is that if you were poor, if you grew up poor, you're never rich. And so the reason that that matters is I spend a lot of my life with a sense of um, um, someone, if someone would recognize that I was doing something outstanding that external validation meant it quite a lot. And so I had two particular people who did that. Um, one was a guy named Sir Terrence Matthews. Mm -hmm. So Terry um, is a self-made billionaire, multi-billionaire. He's a technology focused person. He lives in Canada and Wales. And uh, when I graduated from university, he was my very first boss. Hmm. And the reason he became my first boss is I sat as a student leader <clears throat> on the board of governors. So they only had two students and a bunch of people of the community. And I always moved my name tag so I could sit beside Terry for those two years. And it's not that I knew what he did. I had no clue, but it was very evident. He liked students. It was very evident that he valued and wanted the input of the reason the university existed rather than observing them as a impediment to an untarnished reputation. You know, students sometimes do stupid things, but that's part of being a student. Right. And he was comfortable with that. And so um, he chose me and I went to work with him at his company after a day of interviews. And that was a huge thing. I still work with him to this day. Hmm. Um, and so that meant quite a lot. The other one was um, 
I was the worst hockey player on the team when I started. And the reason I was is because everyone started about five years before me. And so my very first year playing hockey, you know, when you're like 12 and all these other people have been playing for five or six years, you get most improved player because you're going from such a horrible start to something materially like the percentage gain is massive. And about four or five years later, I had a coach who picked me to be the captain of the team. And I wasn't the best player, but I tried the hardest. And so that, that reinforced in my head that the way I was built to work actually did sometimes yield recognition, um, reward. And so, right. you, you know, as you get older, you don't look for those external ones. But if I hadn't had those two, I think I'd be sort of screwed. And so I do encourage people as they think about it is you can have a profound influence on young people if you take the time to observe and recognize. Yeah, now I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, let, let's let's shift gears to your entrepreneurial journey. You know, yeah. we all know, and we talked about you built Canopy into the largest cannabis company in the world. Maybe share this. How did you get there? I mean, you told me once that you bought, you never bought weed before the day that you ran the company that sold it. How, how did how did you come to building a weed company? Yeah, so I did get free cannabis a few times in university, and it was on my list of something I wasn't super good at. Um, <laughs> like, I'm not very good at smoking anything. And, um, you know, it, it was pretty strong. So I kind of went to the moon a bit. But um, when I joined, my first job was with Terry Matthews. So what was that business about? Well, first, they made boxes called multiplexers, which really think of as a, the ability to move data bits through copper or other platforms and uh, do it really fast. And then the company I joined and, and moved on was software so that you could actually bring a whole bunch of boxes together and not lose those data packs. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine you're in a business of not losing something invisible that's going through a diverse network, having to end up at from bank A to bank B. And, and so that was where I grew up uh, for the first six, seven years of being in, in inside of businesses and starting them because uh, there was when we started after that. Um, and so when I saw a newspaper article that said the police chiefs of Canada essentially were very unable to support the marijuana laws because the, their officers couldn't tell who had the right to grow cannabis and who didn't. And I read this article and went, wow, Harper's in charge. Harper loves the cops because people who love Harper tend to have gray hair and like the cops. He's got to have to do something about this. this is bullshit. Like this is in the, the country's biggest newspaper saying they're not going to enforce the laws. He's going to change the laws. So that was in the morning. Uh, I'm in Ottawa. I know a bunch of people who work in different fields in the government. I start poking around and go on a few websites. I call a guy. I'm downtown having a, a coffee at 1130 in the morning with a guy who I'd met through my kids theater program who happens to be a PhD who happened to work in Health Canada. And I called him. I said, I got to sit down. This is very confusing to me. Um, tell me more. And so he explained there's there's hearings. Look at this website. So by the end of the day, it was super clear after looking at these hearings and things that um, I should start a marijuana company because if you knew people wanted marijuana, what Harper was going to do was license a platform for production so that the people who had access to cannabis weren't growing their own mm. and therefore the cops wouldn't be busting down the doors. Now they kept having the right to grow their own, but it changed the framework and put a lot more structure in place. And it was kind of hilarious because I've men mentioned it several times is I came to that conclusion. I was sure I should do it. The first four people I asked, would you like to do this with me? All said, no, very bad idea. Um, <laughs> worst idea you've ever had. Um, reputationally will destroy you. And my brother said, like, 
you could end up getting killed by bikers. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Now you're lucky mom has two kids, but like, this is a very bad idea. Um, and, and so um, from there, it started to become super evident that people were irrational about cannabis, which meant that most competent, skilled people probably wouldn't enter the field to play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then I felt that I shouldn't tell anyone because it was such an obvious thing to do. And so the opportunity accelerated because so many people irrationally rejected the opportunity based on their prohibitionist. And I'm indifferent. Like, remember, I hadn't bought cannabis. I didn't, I was an advocate, but over time I became almost like a a radical because what I don't like are stereotypes that are real time savers, right? Like when people say, well, I don't like this because, but really what they're doing is parroting a prior generation's bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That tends to get us in a lot of problems. Right. And so um, my whole thing was, you don't need to buy it. You don't even need to try it. What you do need to do is be open-minded if the science can show benefit to your spouse, your parents, to somebody in your circle that currently is using opioids, is suffering with pain. This is back when it was purely medical. Right. Your expressed bias may keep them away from the best solution to their current life problem. And so that, that really became sort of um, part of the ongoing hard driving discussion. And so you, you, you uh, built Canopy into what was, again, the, the, the largest cannabis company in the world. Well, Share- but let's just pause it there, built it. So like we almost went bankrupt twice in the first year. Oh, of course. I mean, that, right. that's and, part and, of the course. That's- and everybody on this call has been there all the time, but we had to raise 16 rounds of financing because nobody would give us sufficient capital to achieve our goal. So it was drips and drips, and then it became buckets, and then it became a tsunami. So it was 16 up rounds of financing over six and a half years. And then in order to acquire, you know, we were operating in 16 countries by the time I was out, um, it was 31 acquisitions. Hmm. And so the accumulation of all of that was something that in from zero super bad idea, you're going to get killed by bikers to a 20 plus billion dollar market cap in about six years. But it was it was the slingshotting, the jumping ahead and always, always moving up in value before you raise more money. Right. And and you took it, obviously, to the heights of I think it went as high as 63 bucks, something a share. And then obviously, after you left, it kind of plummeted down to seven, as have other cannabis stocks and Aurora and others. What maybe what does that say about the state of the cannabis industry? And maybe what does that say about the emergence of a new industry such as cannabis? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, rev- revenues keep growing. Absolute sector size keeps growing every quarter. What's happening is that the first ones in are losing market share to the medium-sized companies. So like a canopy, when um, I was terminated, was um, selling one in four cannabis products sold in Canada was from Canopy, one in four. Hmm. Today, it's less than one in 20. The size of the market has grown enough that their revenue still continues to move up slowly. But can you imagine that in two and a half years, you can still have increasing revenue, modest, while losing market share that was 26.5% down to 5%-ish. And so what's happening is that market share is being absorbed by a diverse group of players, typically the tier twos, because they're innovating. And what you'll find at the tier ones now is mostly they're run by the finance department. And what I mean by that is the finance department, I find is like if I was going to 
call and say, I really need a super innovative idea. I want to talk about market share. I want a sales strategy. I want to use influencers. I want to, I want to crush a segment. I want to own it. I want to be 40% share. You know, my first call is not to my CFO. That is not who you call when you want to rip it. Once you thought about the big framework, how we rip it, now I want to talk to my CFO about how we march that through a program where it becomes very positive EBITDA and really is a, a game changer in terms of earnings. But increasingly what we're finding is that the, 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 it's a bit like telecom became 20 years ago, where what happened was it was growing rapidly. It got a bunch of things that hit it. And then all of a sudden the finance department was in charge and you cut it. And so mm -hmm. I, I would put the sector as a high growth, continued total sales. Recreational program is a fraction. And it's, um, and let me know more if I lose uh, coverage because my, my internet, um, they're still putting Bell um, 5 into my neighborhood. I think we're in about month six of that installation. <laughs> yeah. um, but so yeah. the, the sector is growing. Yeah. Canada continues to be the only place that is reasonably well governed from an adult access. It's still growing in terms of a market share and the illegal guys are losing their share. Germany is going to do something in about two years where they begin to have a party. They have a very, I'll call it uh, functional medical program. When Germany has a party, don't you think that's going to open up the discussion of a place like, say, I don't know, Greece, where 40% of their GDP is dependent on tourism? If you put cannabis and Corona at a beach, you will have more tourists. Right. Yeah. And so I, I just think that um, it's very easy to say, no, I don't like it. I would be more selective on that and pick ones which probably have a growth curve of revenue that's at least matching the growth curve of the sector. So is it a, is it a, a value play? Is that uh... now it is, you know, you have many of these companies that are trading at 10, 15, 20% of their 52 week high. Hmm. And I'm not saying that means they're all good, but if then you start to look at the underlying reports to say, which ones are growing revenues at or above the rate of growth of the sector. Right. That to me is an entity that you can have as a value play because you can engineer out some of the costs if they need to. And I also like ones which are operating in more than a single geography. And the reason is you're ready for AB. So like Israel started to pick up as a market, which has helped make companies actually become substantially profitable. Kronos has had a very good last quarter selling quite a lot of product to Israel. Mm -hmm. So those are the places where all of a sudden you get a couple of good quarters on Israel. Maybe you get a couple of good quarters on Germany. The next thing you know, Poland needs a little bit. Who knows? But right. th that diversity can crank revenues. And so I guess this leads to a question that, again, you and I chatted about before, but, you know, uh, the, the big challenge that uh, allocators of capital have is as you're entering a new industry, you want to find the canopies or the auroras of the world, but there are like hundreds of emergent players. Yeah. How do you, like, how, what distinguished you from your competitors in those early days from, you know, as you were, um, so, such that an allocator of capital could enter a burgeoning industry in, in a sort of a more thoughtful way. So what's made us step out? I'd say two or three things. The first thing is I thought I need to become publicly listed as soon as possible so I can have earned media so that I can convince people not to tell grandma she's not allowed to have cannabis because she's 78 years old and is uh, anxious, not sleeping well, and has a super diminished appetite. So I need to get public so I can get earned media. So one of the things that I said was we'll be the first publicly traded cannabis company in the world. And we were. So 
if you're an allocator of capital and you got put into that deal, my first deal, I think, was at a share. I got turned down by Canaccord when my market cap trying to do that first round was a whopping 40 million bucks. <laughs> and I walked uh, across a couple of blocks and went and saw Neil Self. He's a guy that runs Infor now, but he's been at uh, GMP. And I was happy when I got there because he had that typical book out where he's telling you how awesome he is. All I wanted him was to say, not no. <laughs> and, and so one of the things we did is we got out in front with a listing, which gave us the opportunity to control the narrative. So if you're an allocator of capital and you're not hooked up to some of these folks that are running the last private or second last private round before you go public, you should be, hmm. right? Because I couldn't give my equity away on that round except for a few hands who saw it as possible right. and they placed the bets through some of those quarters. Now I'd done two rounds of finance on my own before that, but you can only get so far before you go to Toronto and have to start meeting the street, the family offices. So hook up with at least one or two of the, I'll call them small offices because they're always looking for the first things to move. Right. Um, second thing that got us going is once we were the story and began to be the story, we started to trade better. We traded down, then we traded up. What happened with that was it enabled me to have a currency no one else had, which was a well-trading public equity to make acquisitions. And on every basis, we tried to make acquisitions that you couldn't say were accretive on EBITDA because nobody had any, but they were accretive in terms of market share, revenue, geographies, product fix, intellectual property. And so with that, the, the mode of what we bought changed about every three to five months and moved up. Um, where at the end, you're starting to buy companies which are in the pharmaceutical business and or like uh, the sports drink company that we acquired that um, really had no CBD in it, but could be a platform for these things. So the second thing we did very well is we used our currency exceptionally well to acquire strategic things that were not in the cannabis space often, but could make a big difference. Right. And the third thing I think we did that was um, probably the, the big, we, we, we always were well capitalized. Now, I had a couple of times at the beginning where well-capitalized meant I didn't go bankrupt at the end of the month. But um, <laughs> after the first year, I was always trying to make sure that we were in a situation where I was never concerned about dilution. You say, well, Bruce, you should be concerned about dilution. I, I've, I've argued a bunch of things, probably from the wrong side, but one of them is that if you give me a dollar, I think I can turn it into 10. Hmm. So why would I not want your dollar, even though it's dilutive on me, because I'm going to make $10 of value. So I'm, I'm not concerned about dilution. I think CEOs that are terrified of dilution might actually want to check in and see if they're concerned about their competency. Right. Because they might be afraid that if you give them a dollar, they turn it into 50 cents. That is not a good outcome. Yeah. And so yeah. I argue that dilution is excellent because it means you have access to capital, which means you better have a plan to rip it. Right. Um, that, that, that was part of it. Part of the thing we did also, and this is the final thing I'll say on it is, um, Back to your first question about where I come from. I'm in Canada, we can say it. I'm kind of like a socialist that drives a Jaguar. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I expect to do super well for myself, but I dislike the idea of leaving people behind. So what I did in the company is the same thing as you do in tech, which is 100% of the people who worked at Canopy had options. The right to buy shares at the issued value into the future. And from an accounting perspective, you know, it looks terrible when your stock goes from $10 to $20 to $50 to $75 over a three-year horizon because it looks like you gave away a ton. But my argument is that it would not exist right. if not for the alignment created through the issuance of equity. And I mean, you didn't get the same amount if you were Vic the cleaner as you might have if you're the rockstar PhD who just joined the leader science team. 
but everyone had access and everyone was part of a culture in which inclusion and participation and the upside of the equity was in the interest of everyone. Right. Yeah. Big deal. I think it's a huge deal. I think it's core to every business that's ever going to succeed going forward. And, and that's, by the way, separate part, I don't want to get into it now, but if we have time, I'd love to talk to you about kind of uh, the changing face of the labor force and to what extent that is still a priority for sort of uh, uh, young employees as it is for, you know. Ever heard of something called Robin Hood? It's yeah. kind of a thing. It's and kind of a talk- thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that the youth of today, the young employees today understand equities and structures of capital markets way better than I did when I was young and way better than my parents. So I do think that access to participating positions in companies is actually something that if they haven't heard of it, it could be a filter question on where's this person coming from, like under a rock. (laughs) And so let me let me come back to something, because this came up as a question in the Q&A. after you left, you got into psychedelics. Um, if you could comment on uh, why and where we are on that score. Well, so um, remember, I got into cannabis because the rules were stupid. The public policy was completely, in my opinion, not aligned with the public perception at the time, meaning that people's tolerance for cannabis versus criminals uh, was, was shifting and they had to change the rules. So I get turfed out and um, I spent... I think it was probably three days before I signed up to my very first thing I was going to work on. And my intention was to announce in September 10-ish things that I was going to put time and money into. And then uh, I would get a good return on my time and money. The very first one I signed up to was MindMed. And the reason I signed up to it was I had always had the opinion and I'd begun working with psychedelics inside a canopy. Not in a way that was illegal, but I bought something in the UK intentionally because it had the library of psychedelics. It's called Beckley, the Beckley Foundation. We owned the right to that. After I was fired, they spun it out, thankfully, for the idea that it was terrible to have inside the company. It wasn't. Um, but I signed up with MindMed because my view was that the science was better on psychedelics. And I mean, everything from Ibogaine, which is a plant from Africa, to LSD. And it wasn't that I was using any or all of them, but I knew that the science base was much more substantial and sound and that the rules were worse. And that I, my perception was that we were way, way, way down the curve on discussions of mental health. And that once we had finally realized that like we can cut your heart out and put a new one in, but amputating your head is not really a great option. I, I felt that the world was a bit ready to start exploring how do we deal with these things? And, uh, you know, the oxy thing was going off. And so like, I was like, for sure, psychedelics are going to have a transformative window. Did I expect that in 14 months? From that initial investment, the thing would have a market cap of more than a billion dollars. No, um, but it was it was uh, for sure the driver. And now they're there. I'm no longer on the board, but like today they put out data on uh, an LSD trial and, and some of the symptoms it works against. But they're also conducting a trial. And this is announced. They're conducting a trial on LSD in the U.S. First time in 60 or 70 years. That's been a permitted activity under the FDA. And so I still think that field has three or four players that have sufficient capital to run the book. And they're gonna come up with things that are actually gonna be dosage-based products, derivative molecules, not the first line molecule like LSD, but sub-molecules or whatever. And those are gonna be potentially big, huge hits because they're all aimed at how you manage your mental state. And I think the big group that's gonna change the world on that is gonna be what I'll call the blue line, right? Ambulance drivers to military. If you look at that cohort of 
government employees, about one in two has some form of workplace mental trauma. Can you imagine pulling up at an accident? That's your job every day. Walking through a door where you might get shot or going to another country where you might shoot or be shot. And so that cohort has the best leverage on the government. And I think they're going to be the ones that unlock the potential and the expectation of avail availability. You said, Bruce, you said something earlier where, you know, public policy and perception don't always align. And it seems to be true in both of these theses. Um, why is that something that people underestimate? And why is that something that you've sort of gravitated to? Um, why? Well, so when I went to Carleton University, which was the only university that would accept me, because when I went to high school, I had no comprehension of why people did homework. <laughs> like, why would you ruin this great time? And so I got into Carleton University and the faculty I got into was called public admin, public administration. And the reason I picked it is that over the four-year term, you only had to do four mandatory courses. The rest of the time, you could select anything you wanted. So for me, that was perfect. Like first year, I was taking biology to economics to this mandatory course. And I finally, after six years, graduated from this. So you were learning about how was public policy generated. And it was kind of interesting to me, but I didn't really get it. Once I'm out, I joined telecom. Why did I join telecom? Because public policy changed in the US where Judge Green said, you can no longer have monopoly supply agreements by state or geography, meaning you, know, you can't have 9X as your only source. So when he fractioned and made competition permissible in data and telecom, rates came down, competition went nuts, and a zillion great telecom companies were created. I went, well, that's, that's a pretty good structure. So I always was uh, hunting for everything I did after that to say. And like, so, so now I go around last week and the week before and the week before I'm on the road, I'm in Italy, I'm in the UK, I'm in Australia. The public policy people can't stop talking about is interest rates. And I call that public policy, right? It is it is a government controlled decision, even though they say they're an arm like entity. And so I'm in Australia and they upped the rate during essentially the last week or so of the federal election. Can mm -hmm. you imagine how awkward that is if you're the incumbent leader trying to explain how competent you are? Well, the interest rate gets hiked for the first time in like two decades during an election. Sure. And so like, I just, I keep, and those are super visible ones, but like marijuana was that way. I looked at it and thought that cannabis was that way. I continue to think the biggest spend in a lot of governments as we get through this sort of recessionist thing is going to be on climate change. And the when you when you see the government change their perspective, they drop a lot of dough behind it. Like what did uh, Biden get about a trillion dollars just to get started? Yeah. Yeah. Like I find a trillion dollars just to get started is an interesting consideration. <laughs> so before we get to at climate change in ESG, I just want to wrap up the cannabis story uh, quickly. So, you, you know, again, built this tremendous company, then you get sacked by the board. How yeah. did that happen? And, and maybe just share with us what, what you took out from that experience. Well, so for the folks here, like um, basically Constellation is a large company. They put in about um, $480 million a year before they put in $5 billion and what they bought for the first 10% for that, for that first chunk was 19.9% of the company. A year later, they added about 17% for 10 times more cash. <laughs> and so it was a pretty productive year, I guess. Um, but the in the negotiations where they came, we sat in uh, Labar's Weinstein offices in uh, 
West Ottawa for most of August and a part of September, the negotiations really evolved a lot uh, in terms of how much they were willing to pay, all kinds of things. But the one thing that was absolutely un, there was no movement whatsoever was that they needed to have control of the board. And so I knew eyes wide open, if you're going to ever have a vote and I'm sure to lose it, you must already think there's some things you want to do that I don't want to do. <laughs> it was my conclusion. And so I confirmed that with the, the guy that I had as my, uh, had been our lawyer and the president became the co-CEO. Um, and I said, I don't really know what it is that they don't want us to do or want us to do. But like, if we're more worried about them voting and, and telling us, you know, out the door you go. Uh, you said that uh, if you knew that the board had something you. Oh, yeah. So listen, we evolved up more than substantial amount of increase, but they want to have control of the board. And really, I think what they wanted to do was focus more on beverages, America, the things they knew, um, and less on science, which I was super excited about because how you make a great cannabis beverage is actually quite a lot of science, believe it or not, because mm -hmm. cannabis is an oil and you have to mix oil and water to be successful. And as we know, mixing oil and water allegedly is not possible <laughs> or doesn't like to mix. So um, we had a lot of science. And so over time, we had a number of things that I wanted to do that kind of cost money and could grow market share, but wouldn't right away. And so eight months, two days, and about four hours later, uh, I'm at an emergency board meeting, which when you're the chairman of the board and the founder of the company, and you don't know of any emergency and you're having an emergency board meeting, you can accurately assume you are the emergency. <laughs> and uh, so at that meeting, um, fine, you're out, uh, away you go. And, uh, you know, frankly, it was uh, probably one of the nicest things anybody's ever done to me in that um, I ended up not running a company during COVID, which I think would have been super hard. And uh, through this competitive period where I think we would have probably done better if we focused on sales rather than just always cutting costs. But um, that, that put me out. And so when I was out, that's when I then did the analysis of what are the five or six things that I really want to learn about and keep doing as I go. And I wanted to have access to a single state operator in the US. That's where I ended up being the chairman of the board and some of the early sort of support of um, uh, and entity in Michigan and Gage was recently about two or three months ago purchased for about 575 million bucks by Terrasend because of the execution they had. I put capital into MindMed and uh, it, it ran up to like a billion and it did, um, you know, I think we'll do great work. And I had a handful of others, most of which ended up going public or getting bought. And so that kind of, that was my, you know, cannabis cycle. Now I don't even go to a cannabis event like that. <laughs> one in Florida about a month ago. And the reason I didn't go is I thought it would be about as much fun as a high school reunion, which sounds like it's going to be a terrific experience. You see a couple of people you want to talk to, and then you realize, shoot, I got to hang out here all night. I don't want to do that. Um, so I just didn't go at all. Yeah. Wow. And so let's, let's come back. First of all, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and I didn't want to pick a scab. I just, uh, I just know that you're comfortable talking about this stuff. Um, just coming, coming back to the environmental uh, uh, topics and ESG more broadly and the trillion dollar test pilot and so on and so forth. How have you thought about ESG? Where do you see the opportunities? Um, and, I, and I think even just commentary around how is it, to what extent it has penetrated mainstream financial dialogue today and whether that is having the impact that uh, we desire and so on and so forth. So 
I threw a lot of things at you. Uh, well, the world's pretty distracted right now. People are talking about interest rate hikes. Clearly, they're talking about what Putin's been up to. Very bad Putin. Um, <laughs> but they're also talking about um, things like the fact that in parts of India and Pakistan, it's horrifically hot and dry. And it is, as one of the headlines, I think it was the New York Times said, what happens in India doesn't stay in India. And so I think the distraction has sometimes taken us away from the implementation of things like, you know, um, streaming and some of the streaming deals that are out there and the, the valuations of these companies hasn't gone as great as it would. So it feels to me like all that's happened is the world's challenge hasn't improved. The distraction may be a push. And so mm -hmm. that if there are entities that are getting moving right now, I think they have probably almost like that big advantage that we experienced early in cannabis, where if you find a way now to have forward progress, you may in fact find that a year from now when others are just initiating, you have already signed up a funnel of all the best uh, streaming deals. You may have been working on building certain software elements that allow, like I find it very bizarre that every young person in America can trade a single stock if they want on uh, Robinhood. But if they wanted to actually have anything to do with uh, allocating a purchase and a forward order against uh, CO2 and carbon credits, good luck. Right. So stuff like that is definitely going to come along. And I'm involved with one trying to do some of that, but I, I just think it's, um, you got to get in that play for sure. So, I mean, you mentioned carbon credits. Um, maybe speak, if, could you speak a little more broadly about how you imagine yourself participating in this environmental trend and, uh, or perhaps even double clicking on carbon credits if you can? Well, so um, we talked before that, you know, you'd heard through Debbie, our lawyer, about um, Tweed and what was going on. Probably if you would have called me right then that day and said, um, I have my own business, but I want to work one day a week with you. Um, I only need to make uh, 20 bucks an hour. It could have been a huge yield, right? And so what I'm trying to do with carbon credits is if you're not actually participating somewhere, if you don't find an on-ramp to get in the sector, what you're doing is you're reading the same articles as everybody else. And you may be at a time disadvantage because those are written with a lag. And so the reason I pick carbon credits and streaming deals is that they're kind of understood, but if you're super smart about it, you can actually make 12, 15% rate of return. You have kind of a hedge on inflation and interest rates through whoever you pick as your best targets. And so it, it, it's a current theme, but is it the end game? No, but if you're not in the game, I think it's very difficult to keep moving through the jungle from vine to vine to vine, you need to get into that first swing. Right. And so that's why I'm doing my first swing. So maybe just for the uninitiated, if you could just uh, elaborate a little bit of what carbon credits is. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose, um, uh, like Neil was telling me yesterday, they, they have a um, carbon credit deal with huge uh, beef farm in uh, Western Canada, where you might forward buy the resulting CO2 that comes from that place and it gets traded off by the way they mitigate it. You could have um, people who are running, I don't know, um, all kinds of servers because they're Bitcoin miners or the gamers or whatever, and they want to buy carbon credits so you can match ones that might result from a green activity with their need. You, you may prepay for the ones that are going to be generated from, say, a mining activity when it happens, and then you forward provide them to another party. And in that move, there's an actual market opportunity because the quality of the credits is the big risk for everybody, right? Like if somebody says, well, I want carbon credits for not cutting down all of the Amazon, despite his activities of cutting down some of the, uh, you know, Amazon forest, they probably weren't going to cut down the whole thing. Right. Right. That's a very different kind of credit than one that, which is generated through carbon capture. 
And so the opportunity for the people who are in the middle is to make sure that they get high quality, real carbon credits. They lock them in at a price belt of its um, an advantage to the forward price. And they bring them to the guys like, you know, when Delta Airlines says they are going to be a zero carbon emitting business, that's pretty unbelievable because I find those jet engines generate quite a few tons of CO2. And so there's, there's a bunch of forward buyers, Microsoft to Delta, who need someone to be in the middle to find the credits, to vet them, put them together, package them up and sell them through. That to me is a great way to see both sides of the equation and why I wanted to start there. So is the opportunity in the intermediaries in the in the axes and pickers and shell or is the opportunity in the actual carbon credits themselves uh let's see over time right i have people pitching me on um why they think they can get massive credits for how they provide uh environments where seagrass grows in an ocean that was not going to be permissible all the way to people who have these super high-tech methodologies of essentially cleaning the atmosphere of carbon and sequestering it I don't know which one of those are going to be the best ones, but you're not in those conversations if you're not in the participating position where they need, a lot of them need cash today for the credits they will generate. Right. So that's the opportunity. You can put, pool the cash, prepay selectively, get terrific discounts, and then figure out for sure which one combination is the optimal combination. And I don't think there's anybody on the planet right now that has a comprehensive for sure playbook on this space, except for... Um, this summer, we will have new areas which are either super wet and getting washed out. Remember last summer, it was not fun to be in a lot of parts of Germany and Japan. Mm -hmm. And some places it will be super dry and super hot. And increasingly, they're those places where lots of people live, who have a lot of authority. When you flood out New York and places like that, it starts to become a thing. And so I just, um, I don't like that event, but I'm optimistic there's a serious capital markets opportunity and, uh, and some real businesses will be created that hopefully will save us from all either drowning or dehydrating uh, in about 10 summers. Yeah, <laughs> ten summers. Well, I uh, uh, hopefully the uh, hopefully our, our time horizon is a little longer than that. But yeah, I, I, I hear your point. Um, but and so this is obviously something you're um, a little bit further to the bleeding edge of the uh, environmental uh, world, and particularly where environments meets capital markets. But as you you know, you just finished traveling around the world geopolitically, I mean, is this one of the, the big things that most people you talk to are paying attention to? Or are there other things that as you're engaging with people around the world, you're, you're hearing? What, what comes to mind in, in, in um, some of those most recent conversations? So I, I had a bunch of dinners with a lot of buy side, right? Like a lot of family offices, a lot of funds. And, um, you know, a lot of them are still by based on the geography there and still they want to talk about cannabis. They want to talk about psychedelics. And we have those conversations. What I wait for is what do we talk about when we've worked our way through that? Mm -hmm. And so um, interest rates are an alarmingly frequent conversation, um, more so than inflation for many of the people. Um, but then after that, it doesn't take too long until someone brings up some anecdotal story that relates to climate change. And so if you're on a bunch of buy side uh, meetings over the last three weeks, there's good chance that somebody has a family connection to parts of India and Pakistan that are completely in a climate cycle they have never seen before. 
and start talking about firsthand the effects that's having on relatives and family. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's part of it, but it's, you know, it's seasonally adjusted, if you will. <laughs> people, people are going to be talking about it in about July and August in North America and Europe. And it'll be back on the radar and it'll be a big problem. And I hate to say that, but, you know, we're already seeing it. I think they're, they're being essentially drowned out in Manitoba right now or anticipating massive rains. And I'm in Ottawa and they're forecasting 30 degrees Celsius for Sunday. Now, that seems terrific, but what is it going to be like May 15th and it's 30 degrees Celsius? Yeah. That's, um, it's very pleasant if you don't think about it for very long. And so I just think there's, um, there's enough afoot here that um, it's going to take at least a decade of government spending, public policies, corporations making pledges. This is a high value mix. Do I understand exactly how to monetize it? No, but I know that being in the game is the only way to learn. Right. No, no, for sure. Um, speaking of a game that I've actually quite curious about, and, uh, I, I, you know, you were the founder and chairman CEO of a SPAC called Collective Growth Corporation. And I think when you and I chatted a while back, you described yourself as a spectacrat, which I've never heard before. Uh, maybe you could explain what that term means. But I guess even more broadly, love to hear how you got involved with, in, in SPACs. What's your conviction level today, especially as we're seeing banks scaling down from the SPAC business or due to increased regulation and some of the recent hits in the market? So I'd love to just chat with you about SPACs and, and uh, uh, your thoughts on them as we see it today. It's like super board. SPAC means special purpose acquisition company. So what it simply means is we raised one on uh, NASDAQ. It started trading um, May 4th or 6th of 2020, and it had $150 million in it. And so what you do is you go to a bunch of funds and say, give me your cash and I'm going to put it in a trust account and I can't spend it until um, I come back to you and you can be in favor of the idea, which means I get to keep your cash or you can be opposed to the idea or even in favor of the idea and revoke your cash. And some or all of the cash may leave from the bank account and I might not have any to go to the company. Now, on the yeah. other side of the equation, there are companies that want to become public on an expedited way with a guaranteed amount of cash in the bank account. And so when we started ours, I was hoping to put together a, a bouquet, multiple companies which would form a single entity, have tons of leverage. The biggest problem SPACs have in the US, mine was listed on uh, NASDAQ, is that all these private companies want to be public, but their competency in accounting and book rec reporting and the two years of audited statements means they're not good candidates. So I was fortunate in that um, we were trying to do something what we described is we, we went out to look for a hemp pizza all these pieces of hemp that could become something. And we came back in a driverless car. And what I mean by that is the company which we brought into our SPAC was a company called Inves, which is a, um, think of it as a driverless car technology, LIDAR, out of uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. And um, we were able to get that transaction done. Uh, we raised about another, I don't know, 100 million bucks on top of the 150 million bucks. Most of it states they ended up with $250 million plus in the bank account and was trading on um, April one of 2021. So that was the good time to be a SPAC, which meant you were the group with the cash that brings a company public and they end up, you end up having advantages in terms of the value of your equity. I began doing a second one. So the first one was called collective growth. My second one was going to be called brilliantly more collective growth. <laughs> and, uh, we got so far as we prepared everything. And I started looking at the way the world was. And I thought the biggest problem isn't pooled capital. There's too many people doing it. celebrities were doing them. Everybody was doing them. 
I said, we're not going to do it. So I paid all the bills and stopped it before we filed it with the SEC. And I said, I'm going to start working on the other side where I help a target take over a SPAC with as much advantage as we can. And so um, I'm involved with a company now out of Canada. Uh, it needs to be nameless. It's valued at about almost a billion US, uh, Canadian now. It was really kind of not really very valuable about a year and a half, two years ago. And uh, we have a SPAC that's desperate hmm. to have a good outcome. When they get desperate, what that means is they give up a good chunk of their economics to the company in order to get a deal. And so um, I think SPACs are a terrific way for companies to become publicly listed if they're able. The reason a bunch of people quit doing it is there's no more fees in it because there's too few good companies left to get out there. Capital markets are horrible right now. Like, do you really want to be a public company for a lot of these? The answer might be no, because they're not really as ready. And so there's a, a number of entities which are pulling back from the space. But if you look like a, a U.S. investment bank called Cantor, mm-hmm. these guys put up, I don't know, 100, 200 SPACs. So that if you think each one's at least 150 million bucks, that is a heck of a lot of capital that got put into these trust accounts waiting for an answer. And typically... The life of a SPAC can never be longer than two years. Often it's 18 months, but that's a long time where cash is sitting around at a $10 value waiting to find out you can sure. do something you like or not. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll see how, do you see that as a trend as other people sort of kind of going after troubled SPACs? Um, I think uh, it will be a brief trend because there's a whole bunch of SPACs that are going to expire in the next 12 months. And what that means is if I sponsored a SPAC, suppose it's $150 million, it means I put up about five to $7 million of at-risk capital. And what happens during the life of the SPAC is 100% of that money is spent. Filing fees, lawyers, deal structures. And if you don't do a transaction, everyone else gets their cash back, but you don't. Right. right. So the at-risk group for all those SPACs, well, if you think there's 200, 300, I know what the exact number is, but they all have sort of five or 7 million bucks, 10 million bucks, at risk. risk. Right. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. cool part is the investment bankers, typically their fee structures, they get 40% or so of their fees when the SPAC gets stood up and they get about 60% of their fees when it transacts. Hmm. So you can only imagine how vigorous these bankers are trying to find deals it's for the like- good of the world. And so they get their 60% fee. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fantastic. No, it's uh, interesting. I haven't, I haven't really thought about that side of the uh, SPAC equation. Um, well, 60% of a total fee I find super motivational for investment bankers. They, they do all they can to help you, right. which means in my case, where we're the target, they throw their SPAC under the bus just so it gets done because they still get their fees. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is, uh, this is the world you reference to your kid, you know, at the dinner table. This is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A um, couple of quick things I uh, still want to run by you. You know, you, you've had so many extraordinary uh, uh, achievements in your illustrious career. Um, and if you th- could think of like a mulligan or two um, in your life, what, what might they be? What might you, have you done differently? What lessons did you draw from that? Um, so I have a bunch of codified rules and whenever I break them, then I'm in pain. <laughs> so like I have a rule that you can't have family members unless they're a student working for a summer, working in the same business. And one of my rules is I never conduct a business or create a business with somebody that was, is a neighbor or a friend that it, I just don't do that. Like I start a business and then I try to pick people into it. And so recently I had one where I was busy. I funded it. I had a bunch of people fund it with me. 
And uh, it was with someone that I knew and I thought was doing things in the way that I just thought they were explaining. And um, it was a total disaster. It melted down to nothing. Hmm. And so like, I would like it as a mulligan because it, it was in the space of, I have a lot of stuff in my garage. I use never or a few times a year. And so it was this sharing economy thing. And I'm a huge fan of the sharing economy because you don't have to store it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to own it. And the world doesn't get destroyed when you make it. Yeah. And so uh, the mulligan on that one would be really just, I, I never would do, I like to be invasive and intrusive and supportive. So when I'm invasive and intrusive, it's not so that I can point out how dumb you are. It's so that I can actually be accurately supportive of you as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And in that one, I wasn't that kind of level of activity and normally was because I was waving that behavior in order to maintain sort of like the arm's length that they wanted. Yeah. So that definitely would be a mulligan. And I would say, um, and people on this uh, zoom, what I did before COVID is every year I tried to gain about two to three pounds. And I did that for like at least 12, 15 years. And if not for COVID, I probably would end up having, who knows I might, but, um, some kind of cardiac event for sure before I was 60. And so like the mulligan I would have done over on that is just pay attention earlier to mm -hmm. what you eat, when you sleep and what you exercise. I paid zero heed to anything except what I needed to get done. Right. And uh, now I feel fantastic, but like it was ridiculous that I, it took actually, I just intentionally ignored, right? like actively ignored, just bought bigger clothes, took pills for blood pressure. And um, that, that was really not a really great pattern. Um, and it, 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 I perfected it over more than a decade. <laughs> Refine the art. I, uh, maybe just uh, in final one or two questions, just, you know, um, as since most of the people on the call are, are single family offices or ultra high net worth uh, capital allocators, you know, any advice that you might offer or common mistakes that you see uh, alligators or investors of this ilk making? Uh, well, I guess I'm probably one of them. And the mistake I'm making is um, I've mentioned one, you know, betting on the wrong leader mm -hmm. so much. Nothing succeeds unless you're innovative and find ways for success. And I haven't been a, part of my blind spot sometimes is I think I'm a super good judge of character. And therefore, when you think you're that, when the person's the wrong person, it can't possibly be true because you're such a good judge of character. And so that is a blind spot by process of that loop of having to break your theory that you're really good at something and you're not, and therefore you are super blind to it. Um, but, you know, I, I try not to go in. My swing zone is fairly small. I'm looking for beach balls now. And what I mean is unless I can actually be what I call, I buy myself a part-time job. So the reason I think it works is I will only invest in things which I think that I can add a sufficient value that I should pay less than everyone else. And I want to work with the team, which means a scheduled call every Monday, which we run through a procedural method of analyzing where we are. And I never want to hear from the company when things turn out. It's only when it goes wrong. and That's what we work on. Right. And so my swing zone is software, certain types of tech evolving into climate change, backward looking, almost zero cannabis, almost zero um, psychedelics, but I need to be in spots where I can actually put down a dollar for $2 of equity value and turn it into 10. Fantastic. And Maybe. that, I think everybody on this call, you know, the best, the best part is, um,
putting a part-time job as an investment is actually fully rewarding and usually makes it turn out better. Yeah, now I, 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 I could completely see that. Just maybe I'll end with this. When you think of the best piece of advice or wisdom that anyone has ever uh, imparted on you, what comes to mind? Uh, when I first started in telecom in Terry Matthews' company, there was a gentleman who ran much of the U.S., and I was seconded to go work for him. And at about 7 o'clock one night, when we were working on a proposal for a New York telephone company, he calls me and he says, Bruce, I got to tell you something. So, George, what? He goes, you're not stupid. You just don't know anything. <laughs> and and that's, that was actually true and was very motivational because what I had was an IQ and a capability, but I had no content because I hadn't grown up with content. So you have to spend your life vigorously accumulating stuff that you're not stupid. You just don't know anything. Fill the cup up. Right. And uh, I thanked him many times over the years for actually kind of putting it so bluntly, but so accurately. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting luncheswithlegends.com. Finally, to get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.